verses 1, 2, and 3 in order to be true to the text. The Bible says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Heavenly Father, we know from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 that you have said the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lord, in this day, I ask you by your Holy Spirit, specifically, specifically for us this morning, that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to quiet our minds with this text, so that with the eyes of our heart being enlightened, we may know the hope to which Christ has called us and the riches of his glorious inheritance among us and the greatness of His power for those who believe. Father, do the work. By Your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. I love the book of James. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And... In this section of James chapter 4, it really, is, it really is based, it's a transition statement from verses 13 through 18 in the previous chapter. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conducts his work in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For, every, for where jealousy and selfish ex, ambition exist, there is disorder and even evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, it is peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What I want you to think about this morning and understand is that James is writing a church that's in conflict. He is writing a church that is in conflict. Are we going to serve Welch's grape juice at the Lord's Supper or great value? Are we going to have red carpet or are we going to have green carpet? Are we going to have stained glass windows or are we going to have plantation shutters and double-paned windows that are much more heat efficient, energy efficient? Those kind of things. Um, you remember the story of the, the meeting where the, the church got together, the deacons got together, and somebody decided that they needed to put a chandelier in the church, and they decided in agreement to take it to the church for a vote that they would put a chandelier in the sanctuary. And in the business meeting that night, somebody, it, it was raised, the deacons move that the church purchase a chandelier for the auditorium and an old farmer stood up and he said, wait just a moment. I object to that motion. And the deacon chairman said, why in the world would you object to that motion to put a chandelier in the church? He said, well, I've got three. First of all, no one knows how to spell chandelier and order it out of the Searing Roebuck catalog. Second of all, if we got the chandelier, there's not one person in this church that knows how to play it. And number three, what we need in this church is not a chandelier, but more light. That's funny. It's not a true story. But I did have a man in my 
Congregation and Post, my other Uncle Bill, his name was Bill Poole, and he wanted to put chandeliers in our sanctuary. And if I had only known that joke back then, putting a chandelier, chandeliers in the First Baptist Church Post Sanctuary would be like putting Chris, uh, um, Waterford Crystal in an igloo cooler. You just, there just some things don't fit. Well, you know, there have been many, many arguments that have been far greater and far more troublesome, but those are not the things that I wish to speak to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the arguments, the disagreements, and the fights that are going on with yourself between your ears. I want to talk to you about the trouble, the fights, and the arguments you are having with yourself between your ears. Now, we'll, you can use this with the troubles and arguments and battles you're having with someone else between your ears later. But I'm going to tell you, I am becoming convinced of something. And it is the part of my own um, recovery. It is the part of my own study. But I think that in our country today, it may be the greatest threat that is happening in our country today is people living with untreated trauma. Untreated trauma. Having been traumatized, in 1978, the American Psychology Association said that in America, that probably it is a good estimate to say that one out of one million children have been sexually molested. One out of one million. That's right. I said one in one million. It turns out, research has shown, it's four out of five. It's one out of three for women who have been battered by their husbands. There have been more people battered and more children molested than there have been American soldiers military men die in foreign con conflicts and the research is there and the evidence is there to prove it. It has been peer-reviewed, it has been reviewed by places of the highest esteem of facts and these are things that have stood the test of time. A lot of people cannot function dealing with other people because they have traumas and we and, and even when the war vets came back from Vietnam PTSD was not even a diagnosis it did not exist at that time and because there was no willing to call the men that came back from v Vietnam having experienced tremendous trauma there was no treatment for them and in the 1980s the psychiatric world decided we have new drugs, we're going to throw the drugs at them, and it, they learned something that throwing the drugs at them didn't work either. And there's a whole new science known as neuroplasticity and psychopharmacology that's showing these are things that are so ingrained and so rooted in the human brain from this trauma that it's literally rewired them and there is only one way they can be treated and it is not just by giving them a pill. And in that time, psychology and psychiatry in America went from the Freudian view of what was known as psychoanalysis and went to the stoic gift to the world, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is that you with the right tools, you with the right tools, have the power over your life to have your own voice. Where psychoanalysis is what you see with Dr. Phil and Oprah Winfrey and all of those things. Well, it's just because your mama did this to you. No, you're, you have the trauma because your mama did it to you, but you have the power to overcome it because God gave you a big, gigantic brain. And science is now catching up. We can't pray it out of you. We can't give you, if, if you have a person that cannot read Latin and I sit down with him with a Latin Bible, he, he may be sounding out the words in Latin, but it is not going to help him. And people that have such trauma 
probably if, if it's true that four out of five of us in here have it, have such trauma that even the way sometimes we read scripture and understand scripture, the way we hear scripture is like somebody who is an English speaker but hears it in Latin. It does not comport with the mind. And so what I want you to see here is something to begin the healing process. I don't have anybody in mind here except myself. In this passage, he talks about a conflict within the church. Well, if there's any conflicts within the church, he shows us why it is, because there's conflict within the individual. You deal with the conflict in the individual, and then you put him or her on a proper stance to where he doesn't have to live his life where he feels everybody's threatening him, which is how I live, that everybody's threatening. Everything's a threat. It's not true. But it is what I believe because it is hardwired in me. And so the understanding then is this, how do I appeal to this issue in my mind to function properly, to be a caregiver, to where I can love on them and not fear they're going to hate me if I'm laid to the hospital. Okay? So he's dealing with a church at conflict. And I want you to understand something else that's going on at this time. Not only is the, are the people that James is writing to the church, but there is also a movement going on at the same time led by the Jewish zealots. And the Jewish zealots at this time are trying to make Israel great again. They're trying to raise up and rise up and expel Caesar when in fact the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has been there and they slaughtered him. And yet he left his Holy Spirit and an empowered church that now has gathered together and they're fussing over the communion cups. Okay? Well, a lot of us are fussing over things in our mind with ourselves. The Stoics did say that typically what we think is far worse than what is really true. One of the greatest lessons I've learned from many of the older folks in this church, because I am always a learning person, but it's something Johnny taught me, and it was, James, just go talk to them. And in her advice to go talk to people, it has never been ever as bad as I imagined it to be. But she was patient and took years, but just go talk to them. And we imagine things are worse than they are. Well, I want to tell you something. You do that to yourself too. You're afraid, and I'm afraid, that if I give voice to myself about something going on in my head, then all of a sudden something's wrong. I'm to be scolded. I'm to be whipped. I'm to be beaten. I'm to be verbally abused. I'm to be put away. I'm to be no good. I'm to be disqualified. I'm not going to be received. I'm not going to be liked. Folks, these are things that go on side in the neurosis of the brain. These are real issues that real people, and the only people that get healed of them are the people that seek the healing. You will not find the answer in the bottom of Wild Turkey 101. You won't find it in the bottom of tequila. You will not find it in the arms of another woman if you're a male or another man if you're a female, or in the arms of someone of the same sex. You won't find it on the internet. You won't find it at Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, any of those things. Looking at all those things produces dopamine in your mind. That's what those of you that don't look at Facebook and don't do social media, but you're on your phone all the time looking at the news, you know what? You're getting the same effect. It produces dopamine in your brain. It makes you feel better. That's why the, the, great, the three greatest things invented in the history of mankind, writing, writing, cuneiform, the airplane that totally made the world little, and the smartphone, which has destroyed us. Because the smartphone has become the thing that produces the dopamine in our brain. And we keep looking and looking and looking. Fox News isn't enough. CNN's not a lot enough. I got to go look for what's behind it, what's behind it, what's behind it. You're not doing that because you're an academic scholar. You're doing it because the dopamine is working in your head. 
And the reason for that is, is because it's trying to silence the pain. Men spend more time looking for pornography to look at than they do responding to the one video they find. The search is literally 20 times longer until they find the one to get their thrills with. What is that from? Dopamine. Dopamine. The soap operas. Same thing. It doesn't have to be a soap opera. It can be a it can be uh, The Blacklist, or the, the new series Justice, or uh, Star Trek, things like that. All those things, dopamine, dopamine. It can be as the world turns, these are the days of our life. Heck, MTV, when I was in college, came out with a thing called The Real Life, and it was, it was, reality, it was the first reality TV show. Those that are Gen Xers know what I'm talking about, and you take all these people that are weirdos, you stick them in a house for six weeks, and you film them. And the only thing they can't do is kill each other. Well, then came The Bachelor, and eventually The Bachelor would have to sleep one night with the girl that he's picked, and what did they do? They took the camera in there. Well, it wasn't too long after that that what happened? Local church around here, the pastor decides, I'll one-up that. I'm going to take my marriage bed to the top of the church with cameras, and my wife and I are going to spend the night up there for a month, and they're going to film everything. And that was believed to be relevant and culturally relevant. All that is is dopamine. Dopamine. Because there's a battle in the brain. And so I want you to listen to this and make this ever so clear. The quarrels in the days of James's church within the church and within the society marred the Christian church. And I'm going to draw a parallel to this with my own life and example before you. The 17th century philosopher Spinoza said these words. Just write 17th century philosopher, Jewish philosopher. He said this. I have Now, are you listening? Would you say amen? Don't copy this down. Just listen to it. I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they possess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. He is saying you'll know a Christian by how he fights, not by how he loves. When you consider today that you find a whole campaign of presidential politics going towards the religious right, Spinoza would say, I'll have no part of them because that is not the virtue of the believer. It may be his politics, but there's a, something going on. Why is there? Inside his brain, he's afraid. And he has overpassed his big brain, his cerebral cortex, and is living in what's known as the limbic, L-I-M-B-I-C-K, limbic system that every lizard has. That is where you have your fight, flight, freeze, flop or friskiness or feed is the limbic system. Brothers and sisters, the source of these quarrels, he says in this, in verse 1, is the battle within you. Number one, the source of this quarreling, write it down for you, the source of the quarreling, somebody catch the door, the source of your quarreling between your ears is the battle, is the battle, is the battle within you. The, right, listen to me again. Write it down. I think that was intentionally of Satan. The source of the battle between your ears is the battle within you. That's what he says in verse 1. What is the sorrow, source of quarrels and conflicts among you, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. 
We live in a society, especially my generation, Gen X, from 1965 to 1985. We're called the trouble generation because we were the kids that got up, had to get up in the morning. Our, we're the generation, first generation whose parent, both parents worked, all of them. And so we had to get up and go to school, get dressed, and we got for breakfast carnation and a glass of milk or a cold pop tart. And then we had to go to school. That, that is Gen X. Gen X was a generation that watched the Andy Griffith show in black and white, Gomer Pyle in black and white, and then saw the TV change to color. I told my children, and they believed this some time ago, I said, back when your mother was born, the world didn't have color. It was black and white. And they believed it because I said it. But the reality of it is, Ours is a generation that's black and white. And I asked my wife the other day, I was sitting in the tub, I said, is, is, is the only thing we are as people the sum of our verbal words and our visible actions? Is that all we are? The so, is all we are our verbal words and visible actions? Is it just good and bad? Is everything black and in white is everything good intention or bad intention that's a Gen X way of thinking because that's the way we think you go take us to an interview say hey I'm hiring you for a job I'm calling you to be the pastor of this church we want to interview you and tell you how it goes for me I want a contract because ours is a generation that saw all of the presidents impeached and removed from office naturally distrusting, naturally troubled, and we're the generation that was the most molested, the most trauma, the most difficulty. So we don't go to school and get a degree of just a bachelor's of business administration, which is good enough for everybody else. We have to go get the highest degree to prove ourselves. My own family, I was thinking the other day, when I left Texas A&M University and came home and went to that school in Lubbock, Texas Tech, I was thinking the other day when uh, if I, my family disowned me because I was a Red Raider, I was thinking the other day if I went back to A&M, every, earned every pair of senior boots that could be earned, became the core commander and the keeper of the dog, was the head of the fish drill team, drum major of the band, and then went into the military, got the Congressional Medal of Honor and came back to A&M and was the Commandant of the Corps, by the way, having graduated with a triple degree in aerospace engineering, chemical engineering, and electrical engineering with a 4.0, I would still never be good enough. And so I said, that war is over. It's not my problem. But why did it take me till I was 51? Because I didn't realize I had a problem. The war inside our minds is being waged because we want things that are not real. I'm not talking about your relationship with people. I'm talking about your relationship with you. The greatest thing I could ever do for anyone is to help them understand who they are in Christ. But if they see Christ through a microscope as compared through binoculars, it's a whole different matter. And so in this text, he says the source of the of your problem is that you spend these things on what you want, your own pleasure, what will give you pleasure. And so what we think is so often worse, worse than what we think is true. And so this clause then, look at verse 2. It's a two-clause structure. I'm going to read it to you. You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder is what he says. You want something, you don't have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something, you can't obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflict. Let me translate that into the way I'm explaining this to you in the sight of trauma 
trauma in the war going on in your mind. He does not mean here, the word for murder that's used here is not the actual go up and stab somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer. It's not that kind of murder, but it is the idea of the rage that leads to that kind of murder. He says, you want something, you don't have it, so in between your ears, what do you do? You begin to sacrifice your own life, your own flourishing. A doctor I see regularly, she said, what is it that you wish to accomplish by being with me? I wrote down, I said, I want to live my life where I do not feel threatened by everything. The other day as I was working, I realized, no, I don't only want to not feel threatened, but I want to flourish. I've lived half my life. I still have yet to become a good preacher. I still have yet to have you be the people God's made you be that He's given me charge to as your spiritual leader over you. I have much work to do. I believe the next 10 years will be the best years of my life and the most productive. I have to be healthy, but you know what? Healthy pastor, healthy sheep. Maybe we haven't grown because I haven't wrestled with my own demons. I don't know. So in this text, what does he say here? He says for this, frustrated desire, James makes it clear that what is breeding, listen, what is breeding the fierce, intense strife within us, these convulsings that are taking place in the community, but are taking place in the community because it's taking place between their ears, is that they don't get what they want. They don't get what they want. And then that leads then to a biblical perspective. Well, what do you want? Well, I can tell you what I want. I want to be who He made me to be. And I feel so far from it. But I believe, the Bible says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I don't know why my peers are pastoring huge, mongous churches, and I've got you. But it's not because they're criminal. I mean, the very man that is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention sat next to me for three years in my doctorate, only because I was a pilot and he was smarter than me. I could look off his paper. Bart Barber, in the national news, most brilliant guy. And he is the guy that asked me to leave the Southern Baptist Convention when I left First Baptist. My friendship with him failed, and that was the greatest pain. And yet, it had to happen. And now I admire him and will restore my fellowship with him, but not the denomination. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. All of us, look at me. We, there ain't any of us in here. All of us get upset because we don't get what we want. But sometimes you don't know how to get what you want because the war that rages within. James is writing a culture that's fighting on the outside, but in the very beginning of the verse he gives mention to the war within. I looked this morning for sermons on this and found none. Just like I asked Tommy and Rick last week to find me a sermon on the Ancient of Days as his name. They found only one. In my 80,000 volume computer library, not one of the Ancient of Days. Wow! Brothers and sisters, James is warning the readers about just where their envious desires will lead them if they're not checked. And that is this. It is not killing each other, but the fightings and the wars that are already evident among them and the covetousness that goes unrestrained among them has put them in a place of actual danger. Let me put it to you like this in the midst of your mind. This is why people kill themselves. This is why Christians kill themselves. The Bible says in John 10, 9 and 10, the devil, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. But what is it within a person that makes them want to take their life? It's because there's nothing that will take the pain away. It is, that, listen, when I was young, you didn't even say the word gay for happiness. Homosexuality was taboo. It's not now fully accepted and embraced. It's just part of the culture. But there's one thing that's part of the culture that the Vietnam vets had to deal with, and it's absolute. And I'm not talking about Jane Fonda's treason. Uh, I'm talking about PTSD. I'm talking about the difference between mental health. Mental health, write this down. Mental health is about your behavior. You need a psychologist if you're having problems with mental health. You can come to me. I can help you biblically with your behavior. But mental health is a pandemic in this country that has to do with behavior. But there is mental illness. Mental illness is where there is a genuine problem in the brain and requires a medical diagnosis. Now there are plenty of us in this society that have said, well, they're just hiding behind that diagnosis to act the way they are. That in of itself has some kind of neurosis in it because that to me is similar to like telling someone to go to hell. You have no idea what kind of past they're dealt with. If the statistics were true that four in five of, of people in America have been molested, then I would say this, that would mean four out of five of you were, and so we got to cut some slack. But the only reason we can't cut slack on other people is because we won't give it to ourselves. We have to perform. We're not like millennials. You don't have to perform. We'll give you a trophy. When we grew up, if you didn't win, there's no prize for second place. And that doesn't meet Gen X right. We're not the ones, we're not the great generation. We're not the baby boomers, we're not the baby busters, and we're not the forgotten generation. We're the, we are the troubled one. Well, that doesn't mean that we have something to boast about. It means we have something to fix. We have something to fix. Our children aren't the millennials. My children did not get their bottoms powdered every day. They didn't get to eat their meals on the sofa. Truett has to mow the yard still today. I just have to pay him to do it. But he needs the money because he's got a cute girlfriend. And since I'm paying for her to eat, I just figure I better get some work out of it. Because I think she's worth it. Even though her father owns two Chick-fil-A's. But whatever. At least I've, my son is Baptist enough to date a girl whose father's made a living off of the gospel bird. Amen? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The fights and the quarrels that go on in our heads come from wrong desires. One of the reasons of taking the church into the, to the discipline of the regulative principle is to move into the desires of the Lord. Is to move into the desires of the Lord. I, don't, I cannot baptize children if I could, I would resign and become a Presbyterian minister. That's the only step it would take. I totally understand why they do it. I totally agree with why they do it. I totally can justify why they do it. I can't do it because it's not a biblical mandate. That's it. But neither is in the Bible where it says women can take the Lord's Supper. doesn't say that, but we do it. My children have decided to go to a Presbyterian church in Fort Worth. They said, would, who would have ever thought, Dad, that your children would be Presbyterian? I said, you've been doing it for the last, last several years with me, but the reality is soon I'll know how Presbyterian you are because you're going to tell me you're more Reformed than I am. You've been calling me a liberal, and every time you see J.C., you're not going to thank Jesus Christ. You're going to thank John Calvin. I was talking to your son this morning, Luke about going to the same place. And he said, well, we have the problem with the baptism. I said, they don't have a problem with your problem with the baptism. You will be fed. What is the church for? 
Do you go to church because of what people do in the baptistry? Is that the only basis? What if you go to a place and you can have a genuine man raised up, trained up, and can lead you into the presence of God and open the scriptures to you, rightly dividing them, a man of account, and can speak truth to your heart where his only joy is not that you like the sermon, but when you leave, he knows the gospel has been declared to the glory of God and to the help of a sheep. There's not a lot of churches like that. Johnny McGregor told me the other day, we had breakfast when they had to leave the second church they've gone to since they've gone to Garland because they decided to violate the church's bylaws and they ordained a woman as an elder and went to the pastor and said, this is our bylaws say we cannot do that. And he said, we're changing those too. And he's heart sick. He's heart sick. It's like moved to Gainesville. He's done that. Moved to Gainesville. He's heart sick. This morning I found him a journey church in uh, Dallas that just happens to baptize babies. I said, you can get past it. You don't have to baptize yours, but you will be taught the Word of God and loved and cared for and ministered to and your people will be your wife and you will have community and you don't have to worry. It's not a mega church because the people that are the consumers out there, that's what they want. But as for me and my house, we want to serve the Lord. We want to do what's right. Do as best we can with what God has given us. And so then down here at the bottom, James notes this. He says this. He says in verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Brothers and sisters, understand this to me as now I'm going to give you the application of the text. Understand this as I tell you this. I want you to look at that idea of your pleasures and I want you to write on your notepad, personal peace. I want you to write on your notepad, personal peace. And let me give you an illustration I had to deal with the other day. I had to pay for this to get this word of knowledge. I was told the other, the other day an event happened that these happened in my home. Truett ran out of insulin. He's been the Sasquatch down at Denton Bible Church uh, sports camp this week. I've got pictures of him. He's been Sasquatch in 110 degrees weather, head to toe with more hair than he has on his head, which we're not praying for any more hair on his head, by the way. <laughs> And he was down to a shot or an injection left of insulin. The insurance somehow got messed up. It was a $550 thing that should normally be $70. I had $550 in my pocket cash. And I said, I'm not doing this. I chewed on Truett. Why did we wait to the last minute? All this stuff. And all I could think in my mind, I catastrophized it. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. I've got to get my son insulin so he can survive so I can kick his rear. So it took Kelly an hour to talk back and forth and tell me the story. I'm erupting inside, slammed the doors a few times, actually began to speak some French, and got in the car, drove to Tom Thumb. The pharmacist looked at me. She was so afraid I was going to go postal. She just wrote the prescription herself, gave me the insulin, took my $70, went back home. Kelly is bawling, thinking that I was mad at her. I wasn't mad at her. I was mad at him and the insurance company and all of these things. So the next day, I'm on the phone with my helper, and she said, okay, what would it, listen, listen to me, what would have happened if it was your fault? Nothing. What would have happened if you hadn't got the insulin? An ambulance would have come, and then what? The ambulance would have taken the ER, and then what? He'd have got insulin, and then what? He'd go back to playing Sasquatch. She said, what were you worried about? That is a perfect example of the war that goes on within our mind that is not realistic, that disengages the smart part of your brain called the limbic system. And this is what she told me. She says, you need to carry around in your card a cartoon that's really funny and two questions. You might want to write this down. The first question is, what if? 
dot, dot, dot. The second one is, and then what? Dot, dot, dot. And then what? And next time you're presented with a thing before you catastrophize it, look at that card and laugh. Now there's, you know, that you don't do that when someone comes to you and says, you know, my husband's died. <laughs> and then what? You know, that's not the point. This is the war within. And I said, everything you, listen, look at me. Everything you've told me to do is terribly selfish. And one thing about Gen Xers, we were is beat out of us to be selfish. Sounds terribly selfish. And she said, I am the queen of retorts. Let me give you a new one. I said, okay. She said, will you, Dr. Egan, be happier living the rest of your life uptight, unreasonable, illogical, stressed out, and tired? Or would you live a better life if you just lighten up and ask what if and then what? I said, match, set, game. We pray like that. We pray in a panic when we need to step back for a moment and say, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? I don't know how many of you are in here that have ever been in a position in your life where something has happened that it probably would cost you your life. But there are not many circumstances in our life where we have to make a split decision where if we decide wrong, we're going to be dead, yet we act like it. For me, the only thing worse than being dead is feeling threatened when there's no threat. Why is that? I've asked my dearest friends, what is one of the biggest triggers you see in me? James, you can't be disagreed with. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I said it's when I'm disagreed with with a threat. When there's a threat. Some time ago, a man offered to bust my head off my shoulders. Not too long ago, if it were not for that man, for my wife, I'd be in prison because that was a visceral threat to me. And everything in me came out. But you know what? It went past my brain, my big brain, straight to my lizard brain. Act just like a lizard. Ladies and gentlemen, go back to this text. Let me, now that I've explained this and given you this summary, I want to make this so easy. Write these words down. Here it is. Here is the application to this dump I just gave you. Pray without qualification. This will begin your healing. Pray without qualification. Look at the end of verse 2 and we're finished. Pray without qualification. Let me prove it up very quickly. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. This passage of scripture should be printed out and placed everywhere you cast your eyes. So you remember. You have not, for you ask not. The reason that we need to remember this is that we forget over time, listen to me, how important prayer really is. How important prayer really is. I need to be reminded that prayer works and that God really does answer prayer and that earnest, fervent prayer has a great power as it's working. That's James 5.16. The fervent effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That is the whole point here. You don't have because you don't ask. Oh, you believe, yes. I don't doubt that. You have the zeal, you have the faith, but you don't ask. And for some, to ask for healing is selfishness. When it's not selfishness, it's stewardship. Me not being uptight, wound up. I remember my first deacons meeting at First Baptist Gainesville. Went in there. They, they all loved me at that time. And Raymond Root came and said, you need to relax. 
I was so uptight. But I'd never been taught anything but to hate deacons. They acted like devils at First Baptist Church Post. And when I went to seminaries, I had the, I had the biggest deacon hater there ever was, Doug Dickens. And none of them ever did anything to me. Right? But that's how I was. The reality of it is this, is say, you have not because you ask not. I have the faith to believe it can happen, but I need to ask for it. And it's interesting to me, and I want you to notice this. Look at the text, that little sentence. You have not for you ask not. Notice, nowhere does he qualify the statement. He does not qualify that statement. He doesn't qualify the imperative, or the truth rather. He does not qualify, ask not, you have not, for you ask not. He does not mention anything about praying in Jesus' name. You notice that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't mention anything about ensuring that our prayers are according to the will of God. That's 1, James, 1 John chapter 5. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't mention anything about persistence in prayer. He doesn't say anything about God's timetable. And to be sure, notice, He doesn't stipulate that our asking is not to be selfish asking that intends to spend on our own passions. He doesn't even do that. What does He do? He says, pray. Because you do not have because you do not pray. And that is the source of where true healing begins. For the war that goes on between your ears. No one, look, no one can walk in your shoes. No one has never stood in your shoes. Why then would you deny yourself comfort by which others have been comforted as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, those who may have a similar experience. Why would you deny it? Why would you hold your own sickness, your own pain, your own difficulty to the exclusion of God's working through His people and His church, His minister, His word. Why would you do that? There's only one reason you do that. Because you're sick. And you're afraid. And you know what? It's okay. Pray. 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 You believe prayer works. Don't let it be seen with your mouth. Let it be seen with your life. And you know who needs to see it most? You. Kelly and I took a little vacation last week and we recounted the harshest words we've said to each other. You can do it on one hand. 28 years. And my last, and she wouldn't mind me telling you this because it's part of this. The, the last harsh word she ever said to me, and I said, you always say you pray for me. And she said, I gave up. It never's worked. And I said, do you think it's worked? She said, yeah, it has. That's pain talking. James wants us, brothers and sisters, write it down. In this passage, with this clause, James wants us to feel the full weight of what he is saying and he adds no condition or qualification to it. Prior to this, he has said, if you want to be a teacher, you better think about that because you are going to have a far worse judgment. Even in Christ. And he's not talking about a Sunday school teacher. He's talking about a preacher. You want to be a leader in the church? You're going to have a far worse judgment. You better think about that. He's gone through all of these things up to this point. Telling you, say, you know what, you have faith, great, but let's see your works. You don't have any works, but you say you have faith. Hmm. He talks about the sins of favoritism. He talks about being a doer of the word, not a repeater of the word. 
All of these things. And so he gets down here and, and what's he talking about? Notice your Bibles right there before chapter 4. It should have a heading in there. My new American standard says, draw near to God. You know how you draw near to God? It's not in worship service. It's prayer. It's prayer. And folks, that's where the healing begins. It's prayer. And when you think, listen to me, if you think right now, if you think right now, it doesn't work. This message is for you. Because you, like the people, have forgotten the power of prayer. Prayer changes things. It doesn't change God. It changes you. It changes me. And so, what is he saying? If we're to nuance this exhortation and gloss over it and take it too lightly, the bottom line is this. It's not what you do, when you do it, how you do it. It's simply this. Prayer works. Start praying. My son's an alcoholic. Start praying. My child is lost. Start praying. Lord, I'm messed up in the brain. Start praying. I have responded, Lord, start praying. Spend time with Him. The Bible goes on to say in this chapter, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. With no condition, no qualification. Brothers and sisters, we need to feel the full weight of James's words and be reminded God really does answer prayer. And the reason we don't have what we desire is because we haven't even asked for it. We haven't even asked for it. So the pastoral question I need to ask you is this. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? That what you don't have is because you have not asked. Does that mean that you will then have for what you ask for? That's not what the text says. The text says only you have not for you ask not. It sounds to me it's time to start asking to silence the battle that's going on between our ears so that wars and contentions and deceitfulness and heartache and hardship may be removed from us and thereby removed from those around us because we impose it upon them because we don't know any other way to live but as a survivor of our own pain. You have not for you ask not. Therefore, start asking. That's where the healing begins. To God be the glory. Amen. Would you stand?